you can go ahead and, and open to the book of James. The book of James. We've been there for a couple of weeks. We'll be there for two or three more, including next week when um, Pastor Wes will be preaching to you. Um, he's just going to continue the series. Uh, but go ahead and find James chapter 1. And you know, I, I mentioned this before, I think, but James gets kind of a bad rap sometimes, especially in the Protestant church. And that actually goes all the way back to the time of Martin Luther, who like 500 years ago said some not-so-nice things about the book of James. Uh, Luther didn't pull his punches when he was talking, and so he, he uh, just sort of said what he meant. And as he encountered the book of James, Luther said he didn't see a whole lot of Jesus in it. He didn't see a whole lot of gospel in it. He didn't see a whole lot of grace in it. And he didn't deny that it was, that it was part of inspired Scripture, but he, uh, he, he said he, he couldn't really find that it was all that useful, and he called it an epistle of straw. Um, however, uh, I think he was mistaken in a lot of ways, um, and I think even Luther probably would, would say that he maybe overspoke a little bit at that point. But the, the part of James that gave Luther the biggest headache is actually the part that we're going to look at today. And uh, today, we're not going to start with it, but we'll, we'll kind of end there. We're going to find out why this issue arose. Today's theme, however, is really right at the heart of the book of James. Um, I went back and forth on what to, to call today's message, and what I settled on was, and remember, we've been calling the, the, the series, Don't Get the Wrong Idea. So what I settled on was, don't get the wrong idea about God's Word. Don't get the wrong idea about God's Word. And when I say that, I don't mean the wrong idea as in, what God's Word is, that it is you know, inspired by God, or, or that it's faithful, or that it's true. Um, I, I think we all believe those things, and, and that's not what I'm really talking about. When I say don't get the idea about God's Word, we're really talking here about how to use God's Word, how to read God's Word, what happens to us when we encounter God's Word. Here at First Alliance Church, we are passionately committed to the truth of Scripture. And in fact, you know, we're going to have vacation Bible school. And I know everybody calls it vacation Bible school, but here I can promise you it will be vacation Bible school. These kids will encounter the Word of God in a way that can change their lives. And, and that's what the Word of God does. Um, and, and when we survey people in our church body, we've done this a couple of times for different reasons about why they became part of First Alliance and why they stay here, our commitment to the Bible always seems to come in first place among the reasons. But we probably need to ask ourselves this. Okay, we definitely have a really high view of God's Word. In fact, it's in our new logo. But what difference does that make? Does it, in fact, transform us? How? How, how does the Bible change us to be more like Jesus? Does it even do that? Or is our respect for the Bible merely theoretical and maybe not so real or practical? And these are questions that we have to ask, not only in the church, but every Christian believer, everybody who calls themselves a Christian has to ask this question too. And you have to ask yourself, and I have to ask myself the question, how is your life different? Very down-to-earth question. How is your life different? In what way is your life different because you have encountered God's Word? In what concrete way has the Bible had an impact on your life so that you are different now than you would have been if you hadn't run into it? James, if we take him seriously, is going to force us to answer that question today. So let's start by looking here in chapter 1 at verses 19 to 24. James 1, 19 to 24. 
The real guts of this is around 22 to 24, but I want to get into it. So starting in verse 19, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So one way that we can get the wrong idea about God's word is... is in James's words here, to be hearers but not doers. To hear the word but not do what it says. To hear the word but not do it. I was actually rather amused the first time that I um, ever encountered these verses in the original language. Because when James talks about a man looking in the mirror and then forgetting what he looks like, instead of using the word anthropos, which we usually use in, in, uh, in Greek to use for the word man, it means man, it's usually translated man, but it can also mean just any person, any human being. James doesn't use that word. He uses the word andros, which can only refer to a male human being. So he's talking about a, a dude. And one of the commentators here suggests that maybe men have more of a problem with this issue than women do. And maybe that's the case. But when I, when I considered this mirror illustration, I immediately thought about the different ways that, um, hi there. <laughs> this is going to make the next part of my message, okay, it's good, because uh, you'll, you'll see why, you'll see why. But when I saw, when I saw this, this, this mirror illustration, the first thing I thought of was the different ways that men and women tend to use mirrors. Most women, I'm going to stereotype here, but I'm sorry, most women especially if they are planning to leave the house and actually interact with non-family members anytime soon, even if they're not putting on a lot of makeup, will spend a generous amount of time examining themselves in the mirror. Sometimes even from different angles, right, ladies? Like this angle and then this angle. Maybe even twirl around, right? I don't think I have ever, one time, ever seen a man turn sideways in front of a mirror. We know that it's not going to be a pretty sight. <laughs> you know, we just, we just don't do that. Now, there are times, like right after the shower, you know, when we're shaving, that's when we use a mirror because a mirror might actually save us from physically damaging ourselves while shaving. And then after that, maybe most guys give it a quick once over, you know, make sure that nothing is any uglier than it usually is, and then we're good to go. That's it. And then we go get dressed, and we may not even check the mirror ever again that, that day unless we hear that question from our wife. And, and men who have heard this question, you know what the, the tone of voice is and what it sounds like. Here's the question. Is that what you're going to wear? <laughs> and when I hear that question, um, I, I'm pretty sure the answer is going to end up being no. But, but I'm really not sure why until Dawn enlightens me as to why. Now, what is this mirror that we are looking into or supposed to be looking into? Because obviously this is a metaphor, right? We're not talking about an actual mirror. So what's, well, James says the mirror is the Word, meaning certainly the Word of God. And he also refers to it as the law later on, which certainly means and includes the Old Testament law, especially the law of Moses. 
But why, why does James call the law a mirror that shows us our true selves? I mean, we don't normally think of laws that way, right? Like, what laws do we interact with today? Well, maybe, you know, traffic law, tax law, civil law, criminal law. You know, we, we, we know what that means, but we don't normally think of the law as showing us anything about ourselves necessarily. But James says the law he's talking about should indeed be like a mirror, and as we encounter it, as we read it, as we hear it preached, should be happening right now, as a matter of fact, we should be seeing something about ourselves. We should be learning things. It should reveal things about us. And I believe that James here is talking not just about the Old Testament Scriptures, but I believe what James is really referring to here is the Old Testament Scriptures as presented to us and interpreted for us by Jesus in light of the gospel. Let me say that again, because we know that, that the Old Testament, that was James' scripture at the time, back in the, you know, in, in the first century, right? So what he's talking about here is the Old Testament scriptures presented to us and interpreted for us by Jesus in light of the gospel. Let me tell you why I say that. The parallels between the book of James and what most of us know as the Sermon on the Mount, which is, which is a big sermon that Jesus preached between Matthew 5 and Matthew 7. The, the parallels between that, they're just too numerous to be a coincidence, and they're too powerful to ignore. Things like rejoicing in our trials, being perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect, God being the giver of good gifts to his children, letting your yes be yes and your no be no, judgment without mercy to those who haven't shown mercy, God's blessing the poor to be rich in faith. I could go on and on. There are so many parallels between Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and James's book here. And when we look at the teaching of Jesus and that sermon in particular, what we see is this, that Jesus was often, he was taking the written word of his time, he was taking the Old Testament law, and he was refocusing the words of the Old Testament to get beneath the surface of our lives and to reveal the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts. And so that's why Jesus talked about not just murder, but anger and hatred as related to murder. He talked about not just adultery, but even about lust. Not just about swearing falsely, but even about speaking recklessly. Not just about keeping ourselves out of obvious trouble and keeping our nose clean, but no, having true compassion for other people. All this comes through. And when we encounter God's law, the written word, through the lens of the teaching of Jesus, we should be cut to the heart because it should reveal who we really are and how unlike Jesus we so often are in our feelings, in our thoughts, in our attitudes. Even if life looks kind of pretty on the outside, it can be really ugly on the inside, and God's Word shows us that. But here's the good news for Christians. Here's the good news for believers in Jesus. Once we have come to terms with the real truth about ourselves, we are now free. We are free to be changed. We are free to be transformed, and we are free to live as new people. Why? Why? Because Jesus died for us. He died for us. He has forgiven us. He has come to live inside of us and empower us by the Holy Spirit. So here's how it works. The law that came to us and used to condemn us condemned Him instead in our place, even though He obeyed it. So now in our lives, it has a different function. It can now become our guide to living the Christian life because the law not only shows us our own character, it also shows us the character of God. Remember the Ten Commandments. How do they start out? Usually we think they start out, thou shalt have no other gods before me, and they do. But before that, 
God actually says this, I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. This is about me. It reveals God's character. And we see God's character reflected throughout the Old Testament as well as now we have the New Testament, the written word. And we see it even more perfectly and more vividly in the life of Jesus, the living word. And this is the picture of the type of person that we are to be becoming as the Holy Spirit transforms us from the inside out. This is the proper use of the law for Christians, the commandments in the Bible. Okay? It's different for non-Christians, very different. The purpose of the law in the lives of non-Christians is to point out their guilt and drive them to the, their knees at the feet of Jesus so they get saved. But for believers, there's a different purpose for the law. And again, by the law, I mean the commandments that we find throughout the Bible. They are now a guide for obedience in light of the fact that we are already the redeemed people of God. The law cannot justify us. The law cannot forgive us. But once we come to Christ, it can still guide us. That's why James calls it the perfect law that brings liberty. Because it has the power, if we obey it in the Spirit, to set us free from the sin and the selfishness that so easily binds us and enslaves us. But in order for this to happen, the Word of God has to do more than just scratch the surface of our lives. It has to be, in the words of verse 21, implanted. It has to be implanted. It has to go deep. Last year, last fall, uh, there was a section of my backyard that, that had lost pretty much everything. Well, except the weeds. There were some weeds. There was some dirt. That was about it. And in the past, I've done you know, some overseeding, some aerating even of the whole lawn, and it's done some things. But I knew that this particular patch of land was, was so bad that it was going to need a lot more work if it was going to recover. So what I did, I sprayed all the weeds. I waited a while. I actually went out and bought a hand cultivator, and I tore up the dirt manually to about four inches deep before hitting it with the fertilizer and the seed and the water. It was a lot of work. But you know what? Now that patch of land is the healthiest patch in my backyard. And it works the same way when you read the Bible. In order for it to make a difference in your life, the Word needs to take root. It needs to be implanted. And that's going to involve some work on our part to break up the ground of our hearts and prepare it for the seed. Now, that's a metaphor. What does it look like in real life? Practically speaking, what does this look like? You to get out your Bible on Monday morning, you go sit on the, on the couch or at the, at the kitchen table, you have your cup of coffee, you open up the Word. What does this look like? Let me just give you maybe a simple example. In the last week or so in my morning devotions, I've been reading through the book of Isaiah. And uh, last week I was in chapter 5, which is where God compares the nation of Judah to a vineyard that he has carefully and lovingly planted only to see useless wild grapes growing in the vineyard instead of the good kind. And so God says to his people, he said, I expected justice and I got bloodshed. I expected righteousness and I got rebellion. And as Isaiah is detailing the sins of his people, many of whom are living their lives with no thought whatsoever to God, Isaiah says at one point, woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Now, I come across those words. Part of having God's word implanted in me involves meditating on it. It involves dwelling on it for a few minutes, reading it over a few times. It means thinking about it for a while, including maybe during my ride to work, maybe even memorizing it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. That part's not that hard to memorize, is it? You already know it probably, because I said it twice. 
And, and when I think about that verse, the first thing that comes to mind, as it might for many of you, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, the first thing that comes to mind is the state of our culture today, right? Our society has been turned morally upside down. It has gotten very, very good at redefining evil and good to be their opposites. And I can realize that, and I know it's true, and I can sit there on my couch and I can say, oh, shucks, ain't it awful? And I can thank God that at least I don't have the twisted worldview of many of my contemporaries. And I can congratulate myself that I have a biblical worldview. And then the Holy Spirit might nudge me and say, okay, Paul, fine, you're right. But isn't that kind of being wise in your own eyes and shrewd in your own sight? When was the last time you didn't just complain about your society, but you actually prayed for those people that you feel so superior to? Okay, now I'm getting a little bit below the surface with Isaiah here, right? And now I have my first to-do item from my time in the Word, and like many other items, it has to do with prayer. But maybe I'm not done. Maybe there's some more ground to break up. Maybe I need to ask myself some other questions like, okay, well, how do I redefine good and evil in my own life and put labels on there? Do I tend to maybe gossip about people and redefine it as loving concern or telling it like it is? Am I harsh with people and I rebrand my impatience as tough love or my foul language as authenticity? Do I withhold money from somebody that I can help financially and I justify it in the name of wise stewardship? Do I fail to speak out for Jesus at some point and, and redefine my fear as strategic caution? Okay, now we're into meddling, right, as they say? But, but I have to at least ask myself some of these questions and ask the Holy Spirit to show me how they apply to my life, or I'm just taking my grass seed and throwing it out on the driveway, and it's not getting implanted. You see, James is going to take this analogy farther than we have so far. He says, there are even some times when we do get a pretty good look in the mirror. The word means look intently, get the full picture. But we get it and we still fail to obey God. Why? He says, because somewhere along the line, in fact, pretty soon along the line, we forget. We forget what we saw. There are times when I can look perfectly fine leaving the house in the morning, but I don't stay that way. I mean, back when, when we were in the old building, some of you remember this. I used to preach every Sunday in a suit and tie. And there was one particular lady, she doesn't go to our church anymore, but she would take it upon herself to kind of fix my appearance when I was approaching the pulpit. So she would look at me and she'd kind of, you know, shake her head and roll her eyes. And then she would proceed to brush off my shoulders and straighten my tie and look at me. And then she'd kind of clear me for, you know, standing up in front of other humans. Because by that point, I hadn't looked at the mirror in a long time. And I had forgotten some of the issues that tend to arise when I don't look in the mirror. You see, men, men do not carry around compact mirrors in their purses to check themselves at strategic times. We tend to forget what we look like. James says, don't do that with the Bible. Don't do that with the Word of God. Or else, well, make sure that that Word gets implanted. Make sure it goes deep. Because it's easy to forget what you look like. Now, for a lot of you, that's going to mean maybe keeping a prayer journal, writing in it, consulting it from time to time to, to remind you of what God said to you during your time with Him. And there will come a moment in your day, or in my day, when I will face a temptation or maybe an opportunity, and the Spirit will remind me of that word that got implanted in my heart maybe this morning or maybe three months ago. 
Maybe I catch myself starting to tear somebody down with my words. Maybe I see an opportunity to share with someone or to minister to someone. Maybe I'm just reading the news and the Spirit prompts me to pray about some sickness in our culture and not just complain about it. At that moment, at that moment, I have a choice to obey or to rationalize it away. To ignore the conviction that was in my heart when I was interacting with God's Word or to obey it, to act on it. Will I be a doer of the Word or just a hearer? Will I remember that there's actually a verse later on in James that says this, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, to him it is sin. Okay, that, that's some tough stuff from James. Let's go on to chapter 2 where it gets tougher. Um, chapter 2, we're going to see another wrong idea we can get about God's Word, starting in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now, if you know anything about Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation, you know why he may have been somewhat suspicious of James. Because you know that Martin Luther stood by justification by faith alone. That we are declared righteous by God, not because of what we've done, but because of our faith in what Jesus has done for us. And this is declared very emphatically in places like Romans 4 and in Ephesians 2, and sometimes in Jesus' own words in places like John 6.29 when people were asking him, show us what we can do to do the works of God. And Jesus said the work of God is to believe on the one that he sent. And in other places in the New Testament, we see it, not to mention in Genesis 15, where it says, yes, that Abraham simply believed God, and God credited it to him as righteousness. So why is James causing us all this trouble, even saying outright in verse 24, if you notice, that we are not justified by faith alone, but also by works? Is he disagreeing with Paul? Is he maybe even disagreeing with his big brother Jesus here? How do we come to terms with this? Well, this, this is really not as big a problem as you might imagine, and there are several ways to approach it. Part of the issue is perhaps to notice that the word justify in Greek, just like in English, has a few different shades of meaning. Yes, it does and can often mean to declare someone righteous, to declare someone to be right with God, and that's how we normally think about it. But there's also a related meaning that's very close. Let's say that I am coach of a baseball team. And I haven't done that in years and years, but let's say I'm coach of a baseball team and it's the bottom of the ninth inning 
and we're down by a run, and I've got runners on second and third, and there's two outs, and my team needs a hit to win the game, a really clutch hit, and I make a decision. My decision is I pull the batter, and I replace him with a pinch hitter. Now, the batter's mom is not very mad at me, but was my decision justified? You don't know? We'll find out, right? I mean, if that batter gets a hit and wins the game, then that justifies my decision. Not in the sense of making it the right decision, because it already was the right decision if the goal was to win the game, right? But by proving that it was the right decision. It was the right decision all along. Do you see the difference? One possibility here is that James is saying Abraham's act of being willing to sacrifice his son for God justified him, not in the sense of declaring him righteous or making him righteous, or right with God, but in proving him to be righteous. In other words, proving that his faith in God, which was the actual means of his justification, was real all the time. Okay, now that makes a lot of sense, if you can follow that. And I think we can maybe cut James a little bit of slack with Martin Luther on the basis of his use of this word, but I don't think that James wants to let us off the hook that easily. Because whatever he means by the word justify, I believe that James is provoking us on purpose because that's what James does. James wants to shock us. James wants us to stand up and take notice. He wants to jar us with his language, even at the risk of perhaps being misunderstood. And I'll tell you why. Because James, as you can see in the very first words that I read back in verse 1, has a pastor's heart. Back in chapter 1. He has a pastor's heart. He loves his people. And he cares too much about them and about us to let us go on misunderstanding the gospel and misunderstanding the nature of true saving faith. He doesn't want us to get the wrong idea. Last week we looked at James calling attention to the the worldly thinking and the worldly actions of his readers when we talked about prayer and some other things. He was concerned, as, as many of you are today, that the church in his day was starting to look too much like the world. That our lives in many ways are almost indistinguishable from those of unbelievers. And and I can quote you statistics all day, but I know you'd believe them already. You know the church looks a lot like the world. And James says there are two reasons for that. First of all, as we've already looked at back in chapter 1, Christians were not being transformed by the Word of God. They weren't having the Word really implanted in them, so there was much hearing without doing. But the second reason is even more serious, and that's that a lot of people in the church aren't really saved. They say they are, they believe the right things, but they, never, they don't really have real faith. And where does that show up? It shows up in their lives. Remember how a couple weeks ago I called James a conservative? And I wasn't making a political statement about him. I said that what James, James is conservative in the sense that when radical change is happening, James would be the guy saying, okay, change is great, but wait, wait a second. Let's make sure we understand some of the dangers. Let's make sure we understand what some of the unintended consequences could be. Well, what was the change that James's readers have been going through? Most of them were Jewish believers. What was the big change? It was the revelation that the atoning death of Jesus Christ on the cross had set people free from having to observe all of the ceremonial parts of the Jewish law. You didn't have to be circumcised to become a Christian. You didn't need to abstain from pork to become a Christian. You didn't need to keep all the Jewish holidays to be a Christian. You were declared righteous before God and saved not by observing the law, but by receiving the righteousness of Jesus as a gift by faith that is simply believing the good news. 
But James, along with Paul, to be honest, recognizes the danger in this. He recognizes the unintended consequences that many people would see this free gift of salvation and they would misunderstand it as a license to go on sinning. Because, hey, after all, we're justified by faith, not by works, so who needs works? So as long as you believe the right thing, then you can go on just living the same sinful, self-absorbed, self-centered life you always had, and God has to accept you. James responds to this idea in verse 19, and he says, look, if proper beliefs, if proper theology is all it takes for salvation, then the devil would be saved. Because as A.W. Tozer once wrote, the devil is a better theologian than any of us. And in their minds, as he points out, the demons certainly know the truth that there's one triune God and that Jesus died to save sinners. Those are very orthodox beliefs but it doesn't make them Christians. James is saying, just believing the right things about God and about Jesus is not true faith by itself because true faith results in a changed life. After all, what is faith? What is faith? I've been throwing some kind of draft definitions at you for several years now when it comes to these three wonderful words in the New Testament, faith, hope, and love. Let me review them with you now, okay? What's love? Love is an attitude in your heart that results in you acting for the good of the person that you love. Hope is an attitude in your heart that moves you not to give up. And faith is an attitude in your heart that moves you to obey God. It moves you to obedience. And this is James's second point about the Word of God. Just like we can get the wrong idea by hearing the Word but not doing it, we can get the related wrong idea that we can believe the Word without obeying it. That we can believe without obeying it. If there is no change whatsoever in your life as a result of your so-called saving faith, then your faith isn't the saving kind. It's a counterfeit. And James makes a particular application here to helping a brother or sister in need. You say, what kind of works is he talking about? Well, James says this. He says, look, here's a work. If you can go on your merry way while this person you claim to care about doesn't have enough food or clothing, then where's your saving faith? Now, are we saved by God's grace through faith alone? Yes. But the faith that saves us is never alone. We're saved through faith alone, but our faith is never alone. It always is accompanied by good works. It always results in good works, every time without exception. You can have works in the absence of faith, and a lot of people do. You can try to earn God's favor with merit badges and piling works up and trying to obligate him to save you, but that doesn't work. But you can't have true faith in the absence of good works, and good works are defined by James as righteous living and loving action. Righteous living and loving action. It says in another place, James says, this is true religion, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being corrupted by the world. And if this is not happening, at least in some measure in your life, then faith isn't happening either. And of course, James uses Abraham here as his example of true saving faith, just like the Apostle Paul does. Only James uses a different part of Abraham's story. Paul, in, in Romans, he highlights how when God made Abraham the promise and God said, Abraham, you're going to be the father of many nations. Abraham believed God, and it says there at that very moment, God created, credited that faith as righteousness. And so Abraham was saved even before he was circumcised, even before that work. 
James, on the other hand, calls our attention to Abraham's greatest act of faith. His greatest act of faith, which was offering up his son Isaac in obedience to God's command to do so. And even though God at the last minute stopped Abraham from going through with it, he was still ready to obey. And James says Abraham's faith would not have been complete without that act. Complete in the sense of fulfilled. This was the proof of Abraham's faith. This was the final result, the certification of his faith. This action was inextricably tied to the faith itself. And as such, it can be talked about as Abraham's justification. But I just have one last question for you and we'll close for this because I think it's important. If Abraham offering up his son Isaac on the altar was an act of faith, what was that faith in? I mean, what was the object of the faith? In other words, what did Abraham believe in so strongly that he was willing to take that most radical step of obedience and sacrifice his own son? You say, well, he believed in God. He sure did. He believed he could trust God, absolutely. But specifically, what did Abraham believe? Hebrews eleven nineteen tells us exactly what Abraham believed. He believed that God could raise the dead. Think about it. God promised Abraham that he'd be the father of nations through Isaac, and then God told Abraham to slay Isaac as a sacrificial offering. There's only one possible conclusion, and that was that God was promising Abraham that he was going to bring Isaac back from the dead. Abraham understood this. That's why he told his servants that he said, the boy and I, he told, told his servants, the boy and I will go worship and come back to you. Both of us will come back to you. What is our faith in today? As believers. Ultimately, what do we believe? What could we possibly believe that would move us to obey God even when it's hard, even when it's costly, even when the thunder is clapping all around us, even when it's hard to understand, even if, if our obedience might one day cost us our very lives? Why do we obey? What do we possibly believe that makes us do that? I'll tell you what. We believe the same thing that Abraham believed, that God raises the dead. You see, what God asked Abraham to do, and then he stopped him from doing at the last minute. Remember, there was a ram trapped in the thicket, and, and the angel of the Lord said, don't harm the boy. God stopped him at the last minute. But what, Abraham asked, or what God asked Abraham to do, he, God, actually did. Only when God offered up his son, there was no last minute reprieve. The nails went in. The cross was raised. The blood was shed, and the son gave his life. For us. But then God did something that guaranteed not only our forgiveness, not only our justification, but also our eternal destiny, no matter what happens to us in this life and on this earth. He raised Jesus from the dead. The first fruits of the resurrection, what happens to him happens to us. God raises the dead, and he's promised to raise us, and he's already shown us that he can do it. So if, if we really believe that, this is only logical, right? If we really believe that, then we should be able to obey just like Abraham did, right? Even when it's hard, even when it's risky, even when we don't understand, and that obedience will be the certificate of our faith. And let me just finally close by saying this. If this whole topic is scaring you, if this whole issue of faith without works being dead, as James says, if that makes you insecure, if that makes you uneasy, if it makes you doubt your salvation, the answer 
is not to go back and try to pile on work after work after work in some effort to impress God and to win his favor and to get enough um, you know, merit badges that you can make it to heaven. That doesn't work. The answer is to go back to the cross where Jesus died. Back to the grave from which he rose. And back to the promise that says this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Don't get the wrong idea about God's word. It's not good to be a hearer of the word without being a doer, but it's impossible to be a believer in the word without progressing in a life of obedience to God, which is the evidence of our faith. Let's pray.